Hello, I'm Paulette Lee, and you're listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. If you're over 60, you're still worthy of being heard. What do you find beautiful? Many people I know, but even though it's not true for me, find beauty in nature. Well, yes, I certainly have found beauty in nature, in sunsets over Lake Awasa in Ethiopia and the battlefield in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, in birds like the lilac-throated roller of Kenya and the magnificent green-winged quetzal of Costa Rica. But typically, I don't seek out natural beauty. I find it, I don't know, too static, too much of a disconnect from me personally. But then I found a 2014 article for Harvard's sustainability plan written by a philosophy fellow by the name of Michael Popejoy, who in writing about nature's beauty from the perspective of Ralph Waldo Emerson, helped me understand what others seek out, even if I don't necessarily agree with Emerson's words, quote, I declare this world is so beautiful that I can hardly believe it exists, unquote. Popejoy, the author of this article, in writing about beauty from the perspective of Ralph Waldo Emerson, says, quote, if we're sympathetic to the idea that nature or aspects of it are beautiful, we might ask ourselves why we experience nature in this way. Emerson says that nature is beautiful because it is alive, moving, reproductive. In nature, we observe growth and development in living things, contrasted with the static or deteriorating state of the vast majority of that which is man-made. I'm going to veer away from the quote here because I find, obviously I found that interesting because it really wasn't what I experienced. Going back to what Pope Joy writes, he cites, meaning Emerson, natural structures as lacking superfluities, meaning unnecessary things, an observation that in general has been confirmed by the advancement of biology. Pope Joy, the author, continues, Emerson points to the relation between what we take to be an individual and the rest of nature as a quality of the beautiful. This consists in the power to suggest relation to the whole world and so lift the object out of a pitiful individuality. In nature, one doesn't come across individuals that are robustly independent from their environment. Rather, things are intimately interconnected with their surroundings in ways that we don't fully understand. Pope Joy continues, in addition to the immediate experience of beauty based in perception, Emerson suggests that the beauty of the world may also be viewed as an object of the intellect. He writes that the question of beauty takes us out of surfaces to thinking of the foundations of things. In other words, we can also experience the world as beautiful because of its rational structure and our ability to grasp that structure through thought. 
Think, for instance, of the geometric structure of a crystal or snowflake or nautilus shell. Pope Joy continues, or consider the complexity of the fact that the reintroduction of the wolf in Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park changed the course of the rivers due to a chain reaction of cause and effect through the food web, a process called trophic cascade. This reinforces Emerson's emphasis on the interconnection between all members of the natural world. As observers of nature, we are confronted with one giant complex process that isn't of our own making, but that we can also understand and get a mental grasp on, even if only partially, and be awestruck in that process of understanding. Now, I know this is a lot to absorb. It certainly was for me. And I will put this, um, the link to this article on the uh, Woman Worthy Facebook page, as I usually do. But it really got me thinking that perhaps my concept of nature has been all wrong or certainly could entertain uh, another way of looking at it. So that which is the basis of truth in nature and provides it with intrinsic value, this is again Pope Joy, is also that which makes it beautiful. Nature is the source of truth, goodness, and beauty because of its intelligible structure and because of its production of organisms that can recognize that structure, us. Okay, well, another area in which people often find beauty is art. Have you ever had such a strong reaction to a painting, a piece of sculpture, maybe a building or, or a dance, that you've had a strong physical reaction? You literally felt weak in the news, knees? Well, yeah, that, that's a thing. It's a short-term psychosomatic disorder or at least has always been thought to be psychosomatic, with a number of characteristics, including feeling dizzy, even faint, feeling lightheaded, being unable to stand or move, and it has a name. It's called the Stendhal syndrome, after the 19th century French writer Stendhal, who described in his book, Rome, Naples, and Florence, the following, quote, I was in a sort of ecstasy from the idea of being in Florence, close to the great men whose tombs I had seen. Absorbed in the contemplation of sublime beauty, I saw it close up. I touched it, so to speak. I had reached the point of emotion where the heavenly sensations of the fine arts meet passionate feeling. Everything spoke so vividly to my soul. Ah. If I could only forget. I had palpitations of the heart, what in Berlin they call nerves. Life was drained from me. I walked with the fear of falling." Unquote. Quoting from Stendhal. Now, there are more prosaic definitions of this reaction, but there have been several studies, including one from 2010, when scientists monitored the physical responses, such as blood pressure, heart rate, and breathing rhythm 
of the visitors inside the Palazzo Medici Riccardi in Florence. In fact, it has often been thought that this Stendhal syndrome only occurs in Florence where there is a gathering of such phenomenal art. I've been to Florence twice, maybe three times, and whereas I love the art, I can't say I've ever experienced this syndrome. But Dr. Samir Zeki, a professor of neuroaesthetics at University College in London, studied the brain's response to a range of paintings, pictures of them, not during a visit to Florence. And he found that a pleasure and reward center in the brain, known as the medial orbitofrontal cortex, increases in activity and receives an increased blood flow when beautiful images are observed. So in fact, at least according to this study, the Stendhal syndrome could be more physiologic rather than psychosomatic as a response to beauty. There's another scientific explanation. This one's a mathematical one that explains the concept of beauty. And it's been around for thousands of years, and you've probably heard of it. It's called the golden ratio. It's sometimes known as the golden section, the golden mean, divine proportion, or the Greek letter phi. And it exists, and I'm going to give you the mathematical basis now, but you will not be tested on it. <laughs> it exists when a line is divided into two parts, and the longer part divided by the smaller part is equal to the sum of the two parts divided by the longer part. Both equal 1.618, and the number goes on and on and on, but it's usually rounded off to 1.62. And you can try this with anything. Take a line, give it um, a total unit of, let's say, 8, divide it in two units of 5 and 3, and uh, then you take the um, longer part, you divide it by the smaller part, you divide 8 by 3, and that's equal to the sum of the two parts, which uh, is then divided by 5, the longer part. You'll see it comes out to 1.6. In aesthetics, which are the principles that govern concepts of beauty, the golden ratio creates beauty through proportion and harmony, and it has been recognized for thousands of centuries, from the pyramids in Giza to the Parthenon in Athens, from Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel to Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. And in nature, the golden ratio can be found in the way we mentioned before, nautilus shells curve or how seeds spiral on strawberries. It describes hurricanes, galaxies, and the flight pattern of a falcon on the hunt, and so many other things. The Renaissance artists thought that this ratio represented perfection in beauty. And in fact, scientific studies have indeed found that our brains are hardwired to prefer objects and images that use the golden ratio but these studies have actually been done only within Western European cultural contexts, uh, contexts and only with individuals who can see. So, 
This begs the question, is beauty different for those of other cultures? And does it exist for people who have to use senses other than that of sight? Well, to my thinking, the answer is of course. In some cultures, it's considered more beautiful to be slender or to be more curvy, to have lighter skin or tan skin, to have straight silky hair or tightly curled natural hair, and so forth. As for non-sight dependent beauty, there is of course music, which we often describe as beautiful. And saying something tastes delicious or feels so silky is tantamount to describing beauty. So is laughter. So are the rapture of religious faith, the connections between humans and between humans and animals, and the deep love that we're capable of feeling. However, especially in our culture, the word beauty usually applies to the physical attributes of a woman. Now, we all know how our American culture enshrines and promotes what that beauty is supposed to be. Young with taut skin and slender and so forth. And I'm not going to go into that and I'm not interested in makeup, tip, makeup tips for looking younger. But I think we probably all know about the roles physical beauty played biologically in attracting a mate, survival of the fittest, and sociologically in creating opportunities denied to those considered less attractive. Actually, there's an excellent article online titled Perception and Deception, Human Beauty and the Brain, and I'll also put a link to it on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm not going to quote from it, though. We as older women also know how the beauty of youth is compromised as we age and how many of us make varying efforts to deny or attempt to reverse those changes. I, I'm willing to admit that here I am at 75. I do color my hair, probably will continue to do so, do wear makeup most of the time. But I know many women my age and younger who have opted to go with their natural gray or white hair and or take a pass on cosmetics. On the other hand, I don't see myself as ever having plastic surgery, even though I look in the mirror and wonder who in the world is that woman with the jowls and, and lowered bust line. If you are considering cosmetic surgery, you might be interested in studies conducted by Cleveland Clinic researchers, and they're good news studies. Well, the results are good news. In a 2011 study of uh, facelifts of 216 patients that were retrospectively reviewed, in other words, after the procedures, they'd been performed by a single surgeon over a three-year period. Patients were divided into two groups, younger than 65 years, 148 patients, and 65 years and older, 68 patients, with the average age in that group being 70, uh, 70 years. Comorbidities, operative details, and complications were compared using statistical analysis. When compared with the patients younger than 65 years, older patients were more likely to have had a prior facelift. In the author's series of carefully selected elderly patients, 
facelift complication rates were not statistically different when compared with those of a younger control group. The author's data suggests that chronological age alone was not an independent risk factor for facelift surgery. And another Cleveland Clinic study involving tummy tucks, which is not the scientific name for them, had the same outcome, no significant complication rates in older patients and no significant difference in outcomes from younger patients. So we can spend a fortune on cosmetics and cosmetic surgery in our efforts to turn back the clock, or we can retard the aging process through healthy living but even more importantly, we can adjust our concept of what beauty is. And instead of trying to defy father time, mother time, <laughs> we can redefine our definition and expectation of beauty. We can call it something else, something that emanates from within and that doesn't need adherence to a mathematical ratio. We can call it what? Vibrancy, vitality, intellect, humor, wisdom, accomplishment, even charm. And rather than creams, injections, and scalpels, there's probably no better antidote to the changes of aging than building our own self-esteem. One of my favorite poets, and perhaps one of yours as well, is the Lebanese-American Khalil Gibran whose seminal work is The Prophet, written in 1923, in which he imagines the Prophet al-Mustafa, which is in fact one of the names of the Prophet Muhammad, addressing the people of the imaginary city of Orphalis on how to lead a better life. This is on beauty. And a poet said, speak to us of beauty. And he answered, where shall you seek beauty, and how shall you find her, unless she herself be your way and your guide? And how shall you speak of her, except she be the weaver of your speech? The aggrieved and the injured say, Beauty is kind and gentle, like a young mother half shy of her own glory, she walks among us. And the passionate say, nay, beauty is a thing of might and dread, like the tempest she shakes the earth beneath us and the sky above us. The tired and the weary say, beauty is of soft whisperings. She speaks in our spirit. Her voice yields to our silences like a faint light that quivers in fear of the shadow. But the restless say, we have heard her shouting among the mountains, and with her cries come the sound of hoofs and the beating of wings and the roaring of lions. At night, the watchmen of the city say, Beauty shall rise with the dawn from the east. And at noontide, the toilers and the wayfarers say, We have seen her leaning over the earth from the windows of the sunset. In winter, say the snowbound, she shall come with the spring leaping upon the hills. And in the summer heat, the reapers say, we have seen her dancing with the autumn leaves and we saw a drift of snow in her hair. All these things have you said of beauty, yet in truth you spoke not of her, but of needs unsatisfied. 
And beauty is not a need, but an ecstasy. It is not a mouth thirsting, nor an empty hand stretched forth, but rather a heart inflamed and a soul enchanted. It is not the image you would see, nor the song you would hear, but rather an image you see, though you close your eyes, and the song you hear, though you shut your ears. It is not the sap within the furrowed bark, nor a wing attached to a claw but rather a garden forever in bloom and a flock of angels forever in flight. People of Orphalese, beauty is life when life unveils her holy face. But you are life and you are the veil. Beauty is eternity gazing at itself in a mirror but you are eternity, and you are the mirror. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.